Welcome to the podcast. My name is David. Let's save the world. Today, we're going to be talking about youth violence. In just a bit, we'll speak with Dr. Jackie White, one of the co-founders of the National Partnership to End Interpersonal Violence. But first, I want to tell you about a new horror thriller that's available right now called Mom, Mothers of Monsters. It's about a mother named Abby who suspects that her teenage son may be plotting a school shooting. This is a powerful film, and with me to talk about it is the writer and director of Mom, Tusia Lyman. Thank you for being here. Absolutely. I'm a big fan of what you're doing. It really it really touched, moved, and inspired me. You know what I mean? It's really cool that you're doing this. Well, thank you so much for that. There's a lot to discuss about this film. Uh, let's jump right in. This is your second script and your first time directing. What can you tell us about the birth of this idea and uh, what inspired you to make this film? Yeah, you know, I, I've always wanted to work in film. I kind of went to school for that. You know, I started off directing, writing and directing theater, then moved into TV, but always wanted to make a movie. And you know, I thought this was a good place to start for, on, on this film. Um, I've, I've always sort of gravitated towards the horror and thriller genre. I've done a lot of television shows about, you know, paranormal activity or phenomenon. But I really like films that examine, you know, relevant social issues. And, you know, there's kind of been a trend of horror films doing that. Um, this film's not a horror film. It's a psychological thriller or a, a real life horror. It, it does examine you know, some of the things that we're up against right now as a society, as a culture. I think, you know, one pervasive social issue that we're facing as Americans right now is an epidemic of youth violence and um, school shootings. And I do think that we all, we all sort of get stuck in that mentality of, of it will never happen to me. You know, I, I think that we're not personally affected enough to enact any kind of meaningful change when it comes to school shootings. And for me, the 2012 shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary in Connecticut was a real wake-up call because that was, you know, that that was actually the same elementary school that my niece almost attended, uh, which would have put her in the same classroom at the same time when a former student basically went on a, a shooting spree and killed 20 kids and, and six adults. She would have been in that class. And I think that because that hit so close to home for me, I became sort of uh, obsessed with figuring out how something this horrific could even happen. The, the more that I read about it, the more that I learned about it, the more I realized that there really aren't any clear-cut answers. There's a lot of, of like precautions that we could take as a society. I mean, you know, the, the, the low-hanging fruit being, you know, sensible gun reform to keep, you know, military-grade weapons out of the wrong hands. But I think that this whole issue is a lot more complex than that. And, and people think that they can address it by limiting the time that our kids are playing video games or watching violent movies. But the truth is that other countries have access to all of these things, and they're not gunning each other down in, in theaters, schools, and synagogues, right? And not at the same rate, anyway. And, and I think that this crisis, the, this epidemic of school shootings, has a lot more to do with a, a fundamental breakdown of communication within our families, within our society. And I think that we're so divided as a nation that we've we've turned this issue into into a, a political debate about uh, the two main things are gun control and mental health care, and you know we're so divisive that that it's become a stalemate and then nothing changes, right? And I, I believe that our it, it, it results in inaction. We're not doing enough about it to change it, which actually means that we're condoning these acts of violence. 
because we're not doing enough to, to, to change them. And I know we're all horrified after a school shooting, and then we're horrified for the next week, and then it dies down, and then there's another school shooting, and we're horrified again. Well, we need to, to, to enact change by talking about it before it actually happens. You know what I mean? I, you know, I wanted to make a movie that humanized this crisis, a movie that, that examined the dysfunctional relationship between one mother and her son to show how their failure to communicate can result in more violence, can result potentially in, in murder. I don't know if I answered your question. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think it, I think it does that. I think when, when the movie is over, you pretty much have to sit there for a bit and absorb it all in and think about it. And hopefully people will then think, what can we do to make this not happen again? Right. And you know, I know that the movie, it, it purposefully does not have solutions in it. Meaning if I was to, I may have personal beliefs about what could actually help solve this this uh, this issue, this this crisis, which has a lot to do with social emotional learning programs that we could put into schools and communities. But if I was to make a documentary about that, we'd end up on PBS. You know what I mean? Sure. It, it wouldn't be something that a lot of a lot of the youth today uh, and their parents would necessarily tune into. Well, hopefully people will watch this movie and it will give them something to think about. Now, this is a work of fiction, but you include a lot of parallels to actual school shootings. Uh, can you tell me about how that process worked? Sure. Yeah. I mean, Mom is a work of narrative fiction. It's fiction. But a lot of the events and uh, character traits and dialogue were borrowed from the journals and manifestos and mo memoirs of um, real real life school shooters and their parents. You know, after that that shooting in 2012, uh, I did read up quite ev everything there was. I scoured the internet for everything that I could read about what you know. I was trying to, to figure out how the heck do you prevent something like this from happening again? And it's so complex that it. it the, the the solutions are going to take time. You know what I mean? And I, I, I made, I wanted to make a work of fiction so that a, I wasn't, you know, criminalizing or demonizing anybody. Um, but I wanted to keep it as authentic to the, the crisis as possible. And that meant borrowing specific lines of dialogue that meant building the, the characters, the mom and the son profiling them after real school shooters and their moms. There's a lot of books that I read, memoirs, publications. Um, I, I approached the entire screenplay with that in mind. And every time there was an opportunity to incorporate a real line of dialogue from one of these kids, you know, journals or from mom's memoir, I did. And, and you know, I'll, I'll give you an example, which is after the, um, the Sandy Hook elementary uh, shooting in Connecticut, the shooter's mother said that her son was triggered by the sound of her high heels. I think it was on their, their wood floor. Well, that, that becomes the inciting incident of this whole film, which is mom comes home and she shows us, I mean, I'm not going to give anything away because it's the beginning of the film. She shows us that she's coming home to all of her high heels sawed off. The, the, the heels are sawed off the shoes in the kitchen. And she explains how her son, what triggers his psychosis is the sound of, of high heels on linoleum. And all, so all of that is seated in the truth. That's all seated in, in real events that happen. And, and it's my way of, of trying to ma maintain my own in integrity with how I approach the subject matter. But also, these are real signs. These are real things that happen that other people might recognize that might be able to, to help them start to recognize some of these signs. And there's lines, you know, there's one line 
in the, in the film where, uh, you know, Abby, who plays the mother, right. Abby, who is the mother says, you know, she repeats what Jacob has just said to her. And what he said to her is I'll, I'll rip your jaw off. And that's an excerpt from, from one of the Columbine shooters journals. Uh, he said he wanted to do that before he killed people. He wanted to rip their effing jaws off, <laughs> you know, sometimes I, you know, I would take them to the most horrific conclusion. You know what I mean? Meaning I don't think that, that the Sandy Hook shooter's mom ever came home and found her heels cut up, but you know, I'm trying to make a point here in this film and I'm trying to let things resonate with the audience. And at the end of the day, it is a, it is a thriller, which is a subgenre of horror. And so you do want to make these things as effective as possible, you know, so that they kind of, keep that that horror junkie audience that that movie going audience these days uh kind of tuned in because i think they respond pretty well to horror to little boosts of adrenaline you know what i mean well sure and you mentioned earlier that it's not a horror film it's more of a a, a thriller based on real life and i gotta tell you that's the worst kind of horror <laughs> like that that's the stuff that really hits me uh, is the stuff that could really be happening next door you know, anyone can react to a jump scare, but when you've got people truly unsettled in their in their seat, then I think that you've accomplished a different level of horror than, like I said, the cheap jump scares and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, you're right about that. Now, also, you wanted to make this as authentic as possible when it comes to mental health issues, and you consulted with experts to make sure that you weren't making a cartoon caricature of mental illness. Spoiler free, obviously. Can you give me some examples on how you uh, how you use that to shape the film? Yes, absolutely. I mean, this subject matter of school shootings is super sensitive, and there's you have to be responsible with how you approach it and how you relay it. And I didn't want to glorify school shootings. I didn't want to you know fetishize them in any way. And I wanted to make sure that we were using the right terminology and that we weren't buying into old you know, theories and, and methods of, of, of therapy or so psychoanalysis. So we did partner up with a couple different mental health organizations and they vetted the screenplay in advance. And, and they also, they were super involved. One of the, one of our producers, Elaine White, her mom is actually one of the, the co-founders of NPEIV, which is the National Partnership to End Interpersonal Violence. And so she was a huge resource with helping us understand you know, how to dispel some of the myths, how to be careful about not perpetuating any of the myths. We also partnered with IVAT, which is the um, Institute on Violence, Abuse, and Trauma. You know, a, a lot of their uh, essays and publications were even used as props in the film. You know what I mean? There's a lot of Easter eggs in this film. You know, some of the voices that you're hearing from the television in the background are from some of these mental health professionals that we consulted with and, you know, we wanted to use their voices. We wanted to use, uh, to, to be as authentic as possible. And I think that the, the consultation from these mental health uh, professionals helped us with, it helped us with an overall approach, like, you know, dispelling the myth between mental health and gun violence without giving away any spoilers. The goal was basically not to perpetuate that myth. And we incorporated a lot of other considerations in addition to mental health 
that might have the propensity to produce a school shooter, right? Single home, uh, single parent homes. There's a lot of, of, of commonality there. White supremacy leanings, which I think is a biggie, probably the biggest one. You know, Jacob's addiction to video games, the fact that he might be uh, over-medicated or his access to military-grade weapons. All of these things go into someone who you know, might might be acting out. And it creates, all of these things also create isolation. And I think that kids aren't learning basic problem solving skills or how to cope with real life conflicts, which are all huge contributors to this crisis that we're having, to this epidemic of of school shootings. And and I do want to say school shootings are just a fraction of the shootings that we experience as a country. I mean, we've got so many shootings that are happening in our communities, our neighborhoods, our homes. Concerts, churches. Yeah. Yeah. I mean... That that school shootings has just become the headline because it produces a certain amount of palpable terror when people think that they could be sending their kids into schools and where their kids could be shot. You know what I mean? So it's kind of risen to the top. But it, I thought it was important to read a lot of these essays from mental health professionals, prof- professionals and look at the different theories that they were batting around, you know what I mean, to figure out what was going on here. So we you know, we incorporated elements like theories around the the, the cycle of violence. Do you know the cycle of violence theory, which is, you know, it's portrayed in this film with the relationship between Abby and her mom, Nana. And that is kind of that intergenerational violence. And it's basically when earlier generations don't seek care or treatment, then that same kind of sense of, of, of denial and not acknowledging something or having any accountability for it is kind of passed down to the next generation and then passed down again. And you, you actually see that a couple times in this film, but, but one clear time is between, um, you know, when, when Nana is in denial about, you know, a, a violent event that happened in the past, I don't want to give it away, but that kind of perpetuates Abby being in denial about her own son. And, you know, they're so concerned about, uh, you know, about how, this kind of violence or poor behavior is going to reflect for their their hopes of getting into college. You know what I mean? Is it going to go on their school records? Uh, they're more concerned with how society is going to interpret this little mark on their on their record, as opposed to the fact that their kid is misbehaving and potentially violent. You know what I mean? So we try to incorporate a lot of things that that you know mental health professionals are also grappling with and discussing and, and debating, um, you know, toxic masculinity is another one, which, you know, Jacob has a lot of toxic masculinity. He needs to be in power. He needs to be in charge, um, from moments with his mom. I mean, it's, it's incorporated into his wardrobe with his militaristic, you know, coat and jacket and, 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 uh, hat, everything he wears, his boots. But it's also one of those things, you know, in the movie at one point early on, he he drops a brick off of a, a freeway bridge, a freeway overpass. Well, you you don't do that when you're by yourself. If you're by yourself, you don't go take a brick and drop it over an overpass. You do that when someone is there with you because you are impressing upon them. You are proving your strength or whatever it is. And those are things that we're seeing in kids who, especially teenage boys, who of course being flooded by hormones, and so everything in their brains and bodies are changing, and they do stupid things. What, just because you do stupid things doesn't mean you're going to go shoot up a school. In the same way that just if you shoot up a school, it doesn't mean that that it's because you're mentally ill. There's a lot of other elements that go into that. So we, we want to be as responsible as possible about incorporating all of that. And 
I don't care if I have to say this every single episode. I will continue to do it. Um, you are far more likely to be a victim of violence if you are mentally ill than the perpetrator. You, you know, when, when we watch movies and we see mentally ill people that are doing uh, horrible things, it shouldn't be taken as a sign that all mentally ill people are going to do this. Again, a mentally ill person is far, far, far more likely to be the victim of violence than the perpetrator. How did you uh, address the stigma against mental illness in the film? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and, and you're right. Uh, mentally ill are, are, are much uh, more frequently going to be the victims than than the, the perpetrators. I think that I just think there's a lot of stigma around mental illness that prevents people from seeking care or treatment. And there are thousands of families that are dealing with the same thing that Abby and Jacob are dealing with in this film, but people are afraid to talk about it. They're afraid how it's going to affect their reputation. You know, we're kind of fixated, Americans especially are fixated on that traditional, you know, successful family. And what happens is we're not talking about the fact that, oh, my my brother's kid is, is you know, demonstrating some of these the same dangerous behavior or that my sister's kid is demonstrating some of this behavior or that my neighbor's kid, people aren't talking about it. And so, you know, they think that the problem is that you need help. That's not the problem. The problem is that you're not getting help. You know what I mean? And and that's the only way that, that you know, I, I didn't want to over in this film, I didn't want to oversimplify the complexity of mental illness. So we layered the, the character development of both the mother and son so that you could see all kinds of different things reflected in their, in their behavior, you know? Oh, sure. And that's one thing is you, uh, especially with horror films, sometimes they shortchange the character development. Mm -hmm. Not in this one. Uh, <laughs> this one, this one absolutely develops the characters. One, another thing, speaking of horror films, when a lot of horror fans, when they, when they see that something is found footage, they immediately run. I think with good reason, there is a, a, a dislike of found footage films because so many of them are done poorly of why is this person recording while, you know, a masked maniac is chasing after them or what have you. But this film does an amazing job with found footage. I think it's one of the best examples of it. It completely explains the placement of the cameras. Why is it being recorded? There's even instances where uh, you use uh, Bailey uh, Edwards uh, plays Jacob, and you use old videos from his life with voiceovers over them to make them look creepy. I don't know who the genius was that came up with that one, but uh, I'm assuming it was you. But can you go into uh, what led you to want to do the found footage and? Uh, and do it so well. Um, thank you, because found footage is quite a, a controversial format. Um, and, and I will say that it was a team effort with that idea to incorporate uh, real home video from from Bailey's childhood, and then of course manipulate it so it looks like, you know, he's an animal killer. <laughs> Which, for the right. record, Bailey is not. Oh, okay. Just just for a note, not animal killer. Okay, great. <laughs> Yeah, I've seen some posts on Facebook like this kid. How did she get a real sicko to play the part? And it's like, okay, guys, 
I'm glad that the realism uh, made you believe that this is actually true, but but it is a work of, of narrative fiction. You know, I do come from a, a documentary television background, and I struggled quite a bit over how to approach the subject matter of mom um, and whether it would be more impactful as a documentary or a drama. Of course, the incredible drama um, we need to talk about Kevin had already been made in 2011. And honestly, I just wasn't convinced that the younger audience that I wanted to reach with this film would have enough patience to watch a documentary. So although the subject matter itself is very real, I decided to to turn it into a, a fictional account of this of this crisis. And I wanted the film to feel very real and unpolished like a documentary. Um, I wanted it to be gritty and, you know, kind of uncomfortably voyeuristic so that the audience had that sense of peeking through a keyhole into the, you know, the intimate life of someone else's dysfunctional family. You know, I think we're all a bit... Right. Uh, we've become voyeurs in this day and age. I think we are, you know, bouncing around from Facebook videos to YouTube videos. And it's a very familiar space that our brains have been sort of rewired to to find relatable. And I wanted to make a movie that kind of embraced that that fractured psyche space that that we are in now as a people. Um, and I think that found footage is a perfect vessel to do that, meaning, you know, the trick with found footage films is to give the, 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 the protagonist a very believable reason to be filming in the first place. And I, I think that, you know, having a mother who, who, who genuinely fears that her son is going to do something bad, like shoot up his school, and now he's fallen through the, you know, slipped through the cracks of the system, and she has to now set up an elaborate, you know, system of, of spy cameras to figure out whether her kid is going to kill somebody or not is a very real place to anchor that film from and to keep it in that, you know, that space that we are used to in this day and age, that, that kind of fractured psyche space, I think is a really good combination that, that ends up producing a film that feels very much like a documentary because it is found footage, but at the end of the day, it's not. And, you know, I have to say that I, I, I actually am a fan of, of found footage films. I think, the first one I saw, the first one probably most people saw was the the Blair Witch Project. Sure. Um, and it was speaking of people thinking it's real. Yes. <laughs> Boy, did they have a strategy for that one. But I think that what initially turned me off when I first watched that film was how shaky the cameras were. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that, that it was extra shake to make it feel more real. So so everything that I saw in found footage films that I actually, you know, I, I did I do like that genre, but I decided to do it a little bit differently, which is ground that camera as much as possible wherever I can give give those characters a reason to be mounting a camera in a ceiling or in a picture frame or or you know in a wall so that the camera doesn't move and we're not stuck with that shaky cam that makes us all feel you know nauseous and doubtful in in, in the audience and again for anyone who is skeptical of uh, found footage films give this one a chance cuz uh it's uh, amazing use of use of the technique and when it's done right it can be amazing so bravo for that uh now regarding jacob the not real animal killer mm-hmm. he is very intelligent in the film you know when we think about uh school shooters and you see it like whether a tv show or movie does it usually it's an exaggeration of of what real life is it's like oh they're a loner and they were bullied and jacob is very intelligent very charismatic uh he has friends at school and uh 
he's manipulative. He's able to kind of get the whole world who doesn't see him in his private moments kind of on his side in things. Why was it important to to use that aspect of it instead of going with the cliche? Uh, great question. I, I'll have to say that I have friends from college um, who have kids and, and they're afraid of their kids. They're afraid their kid is going to do something bad to themselves or to somebody else. Um, they can't communicate with their kids anymore. And these kids are from all the kids are from all walks of life. They don't fit a profile. And I think that the bigger you can make this, the more people you can reach, meaning sure, you know, it's, it's almost always white males that shoot up these schools, but as far as their mental capacity or their, uh, you know, personal relationships or expression, it's all over the map. There is no profile for that. You know, when I read before I wrote the, uh, the screenplay. I was I was reading um, Sue Claybold's memoir. She wrote a a memoir. Of course, she's the mother of one of the Columbine shooters, and her son did not fit the profile. Meaning, he did well in school. He had good grades. He, his teachers liked him. He had friends. Uh, he even had a girlfriend for a, for a hot second, I believe. It's a second longer than I did in high school. <laughs> Like I want to say two days before the Columbine shooting, because Sue Claybold has has two sons, or had two sons, um, she turned to her husband in bed and she said, "You know, we did so well with uh, Dylan. We we did such a good job with Dylan. Like she was so proud of Dylan, who was her second son. And then two days later, he shot up Columbine. Can you imagine what she went through?" believing that her son was a good kid and believing that she was helping him become a good kid. And then to have him mow down a bunch of, of, of classmates is one of the most horrendous things. Uh, I mean, next to, next to finding out that your kid was, was shot and killed. I think the next most horrendous thing would be finding out that your son is the one who did it. And so I didn't, I didn't want to, you know, paint that portrait of a loner, with long stringy hair who wears, you know, black jackets and who everyone thinks, Oh, if there was a kid who would shoot up a school, it would be that guy. Because that's, that's, I want it to be more unexpected than that and more realistic than that, which is that a lot of these kids are geeks. A lot of these kids, they, they may be tall. They may be short. They may be fat. They may be skinny. They have a profile that isn't, you know, I think people should be vigilant and should be keeping their eye on not necessarily what someone looks like, but what your relationship with them is like. Um, and if, if someone is telling you that they're being bullied or that they have are having violent thoughts, anyone, any child can say that. Um, and it doesn't matter what your physical appearance is. It matters how you respond to them and how you communicate with them about what they're going through. And, and so that's why I didn't want it to, to, to be a cookie cutter, you know, portrayal of what these kids are supposed to look like, you know? And in his, uh, with his charisma, he's able to manipulate his way through school, mental health professionals, uh, the police, everywhere that uh, Abby turns to get help for her son failed. So how does that uh, affect her and her motivation 
And what do you think we can do in our real world, which it fails real kids as well? What can we do in the real world to strengthen these systems so that kids aren't falling through the cracks? Right. Well, I don't think it's just about helping our kids. I think it's about helping parents and ourselves as well, the community at large, because as parents and adults, we set the example for kids, right? And if we are triggered to, you know, into being angry quickly or being impatient, we are teaching the kid that, right? So now we have a whole, a whole generation of kids who don't know how to communicate effectively. They don't know how to manage their emotions. And I think you know, a lot of that comes from how we as, as parents or adults are communicating with them. You know, it's interesting. I had a talk the other day with someone from the Hollywood Times where uh, his kid, you know, while we were doing the interview, he was in the other room playing video games and he couldn't get him to come out of his room. And um, and he kept talking about how do we fix the kids? How do we fix the kids? And I finally say to him, you know, maybe it's not about fixing the kids. Maybe you should go in there and you should, you know, volunteer to play a video game, learn how to play video games with your son. You know, you're not going to beat them by... You know, at their own game. You're not going to get them out of their room by lecturing them. You're going to get them out of their room by connecting with them. Long story short, he called me back about an hour after the interview and said, you know, you're not going to believe it, but I just went and asked my son if I could play with him. Of course, the kid said no, but he smiled. And and the 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 uh, interviewer had said, you know, I haven't seen my, my son smile in so long that, you know, the fact that he found it was funny that I asked him that was really moving to me. And he ended up telling his, his dad, he ended up saying, listen, you know, I will play video games with you, but not, not in my bedroom. You know, we'll go outside into the living room and set it up on that console there because I don't want you in my space. And of course, the guy who interviewed me was overjoyed because at the end of the day, that's all he'd really wanted was his son to, his son to come out of his room. You know what I mean? Sure. Um, so it's like, I think that the responsibility falls on all of us, uh, parents first, honestly, and then, you know, mental health, mental health care and resources, meaning, you know, there are resources available, but people, there's a stigma with seeking them out. And also they, you know, it's about education. They don't necessarily know that, you know, that they exist or how to, how to access them. Um, and I think that, you know, social emotional learning programs need to be implemented uh, in our schools and in our communities. I think that that's a really good place to start. It's going to take a lot longer to do that, I know, than it would be to, you know, ban assault, you know, military grade weapons or limiting violence or, you know, that the exposure that the kids have. But I do think that that is one of the main ways that will work um, to, to kind of turn this around is to teach people how to communicate with each other. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I have a lot of thoughts on this, so I'm probably going to just cut it short right there. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, one thing I always wondered was um, they always take kids to theme parks to study the speed of a roller coaster. Maybe you should have something where the kids study how to deal with a crisis, how to uh, resolve conflict, things like that. Uh, just a suggestion. Exactly, exactly. And I think that... that this whole our whole culture has become so isolated and even in the film in the beginning abby is you know abby the mom is trying to communicate with her son and just kind of you know have these confessions on her video diaries 
And then the more she tries to communicate with him, the more technology she ends up relying on, whether it's her phone or her computer or whatever it is, to the point where it's almost a role reversal by the end of the film. She is now the one completely addicted to her technology, and she's having a relationship with her technology in a way that she couldn't even possibly have with her son. And that's really sad. You know, that's really sad. And, and, uh, and it's happening all over the country. Uh, yep. Now, I've, before I watch a lot of movies, I'll read reviews to see what other people are saying. And a couple of the reviews I read dropped a name that is means a lot to horror fans, and that is uh, The Babadook. Mm. And I've seen this movie compared to that film, which is fantastic. And I think that there is that very uh, surface, easy thing. It's a mom dealing with a troubled child. Okay, you know, that absolutely is a parallel. But more importantly, the reason why I think a lot of people are comparing it to that is both films are shouldered by powerhouse lead female performances. Uh, Melinda Page uh, Hamilton is incredible in this. There are scenes where she's flipping from fear to love to anger to desperation, all kind of mixed into one, which has got to be really hard to balance. Uh, tell me, tell me about that. How did you get that authentic performance? And, uh, are there any particular, like really, really, I'm not going to spoil anything, but any of the really intense scenes that you can tell me about what it was like to film those scenes? Sure. I will say that Melinda is a tremendous talent and she's a tremendous, she's a force of nature as a person and as Abby. Um, she, she has the ability to dig really deep and figure out every motivation of where she is coming from as a mom. And she also has kids herself. So she's able to, uh, you know, she has that kind of innate understanding of what it's like to have or not to have a relationship with your own kids. I will say that the first time I met Melinda, we were, we were recording, we were trying to get her to take this role for a while. Of course, Melinda's pretty well known, well known. And, um, this is a, a, a smaller budget indie film. When I first met with her, she showed up with a stack of folders and, uh, envelopes. And of course the script, which was, you know, dog-eared and, you know, had, had was highlighted lines were highlighted and she proceeded to, she's so well-read, Melinda. She just, she proceeded to tell me, you know, when I first started reading this screenplay, I could tell, you know, I, I was recognizing some of the headlines from the Sandy Hook shooting or from a Columbine, uh, the Columbine shooting. And, and she had actually tabbed and highlighted all the lines and scenes or events that I had borrowed from the real school shooters and their parents to write the movie and she had tuned into that. So I just knew immediately that she not only had the, 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 the talent, but she had that intellectual uh, wherewithal to really become this mother and to bring something to this mother that I probably never imagined was possible. And she did. I will say that I don't have sons. And so, you know, we didn't necessarily see eye to eye with everywhere that she was coming from in certain scenes in the beginning, but, you know, we, 
we both were, were, you know, we're both very collaborative and we both talked a lot about, well, would I be coming from here or would I be coming from there? And I think probably one of the most intense scenes of the whole film happens in the second half of the film towards the end, actually. I won't, I won't give anything away, but it's a, it's a four and a half minute monologue that she delivers without any cuts. And, you know, let's just say that the, that it's a very claustrophobic environment when she delivers this monologue. I know the scene. You know the scene. Uh, Yep. (laughs) We did that scene a number of times. It took us quite a while to get there because if you don't have cutaways, which, you know, you don't have the ability to use a different camera angle or a different shot because there are no cuts in the entire scene, you have to rely on your talent, on your, on your actors. And you know, she, if so, if she was disingenuous for a millisecond, we wouldn't be able to use that entire take. You know, four and a half minute take is a long take, uh, you know, on, on screen. And I will say that, you know, we went back and forth on, you know, is, should she cry? Should she this? Should she that? And and I thought she should cry. Um, it was written for her to cry. But of course, you know, you write those things and then you just give it to your 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 actors and you let them take it to their dimension, Right. And by the 26th take on, on this particular scene, I think she was so exhausted that she ended up crying. She ended up genuinely crying and even adding lib a little bit. And it was so profound, this moment in the film, um, because she's addressing her son. She's having a real heart to heart with him. Finally, you know, it's a day late and a dollar short, of course, but nonetheless, it is her really bearing her soul and and confessing some things to her own son everybody in video village when she got to the last line of that scene you know everybody in video village which is you know where we're watching the actors in the other in the other room with on monitors and with a with the audio feed uh we were all crying and there wasn't a dry every single department head was crying everybody in that in video village was in tears and at one point you know i hear melinda on on my IFB, my, my, my audio line. And she goes, do you want me to do it again to see And I looked up like in horror, like, holy cow, it does not get better than this. And then the assistant director looked at me and she goes, you forgot to call cut, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that was just me being so floored by, by the power in, in Melinda's performance that I, I, I didn't even call cut, which was, uh, it's still my favorite, my favorite scene in the movie, actually. Yeah. She's amazing. It's, uh, she really does portray that uh, it's she's a desperate i mean it, like i said it's fiction but she, you couldn't tell it if by watching because she plays that desperate mother who's searching for a solution uh incredibly well when you're talking about making a film with such heavy content uh with such emotional scenes you're crying and forgetting to call cut uh <laughs> when that's over and and all said and done, obviously, you're marketing the film now. We want everyone to go to Amazon and watch it. But how does that change you being in that in that area where basically you're dealing with trauma uh, all day, every day for the entire shoot of the film? You know, it, it was – I have to say that as as dark and disturbing as, as the subject matter is of this film, the vibe on set was super positive and light. And I know that sounds crazy – but I think it had to do with, you know, you know, I've, I've, I've written and directed a lot of television, so I understand how important pre-production is uh, and rehearsals 
which a lot of filmmakers don't understand the importance of rehearsals. So, so we had put a lot of, of pre-production time and prep into this film so that by the time we got to set, we knew what we were doing. We knew what we wanted. We rehearsed things. And of course, there, you know, always a million things goes wrong, goes wrong, but it, it, it wasn't something that, you know, if, if, if something bad happened, you know, the rat peed on Melinda's shirt and then peed on her backup shirt. And now what do we do? We, it was such a collaborative group and such a well-oiled machine that nothing really threw us off course. And, and it was a very positive energy on set, I have to say. And, and also, you know, uh, Melinda and Bailey are, you know, they know every show tune uh, that's ever been written and performed. And so every time we called cut to reset cameras, the two of them would, um, would suddenly spring into some, you know, Broadway musical show. And it, it was hilarious because they would do that while we reset and while we, you know, change batteries in cameras or cards in cameras. Um, I, I, I have to interrupt and ask, how are their voices? Amazing. They're, oh. both, they're both theater actors, which is why I think I, I gravitated towards them so much because I directed theater for so many years um, before I even got into television or film. So their voices are incredible. In fact, it was one of those things where, where you know, they start singing and of course they're covered in makeup that, that, you know, makes them look exhausted and drained and malnourished. And so watching them kind of prance around set doing these beautiful uh, song and dance numbers, um, you know, m- my joke was, was uh, I would say over the walkie, you know what, you know what, maybe we should be making a different film here <laughs> <laughs> because it was so, we had a lot of fun on set. Um, we really well, there, did. there is still time for mom, mothers of musicals. And mothers um, of musicals. <laughs> just throwing that out there. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't know that the film itself changed me. I will say that I learned quite a bit about film versus television. And, and you know, it's not, they're very different art forms. You know, it was very, it was a very humbling experience for me, I would say, because, you know, as the writer and director, I have a very specific vision in my head of what I want to get out of each scene and, and, and that overall story that I want to tell. Between the different department heads and, and you know, the actors, they would bring all their thoughts and interpretations to the table. And in most cases, like television, I wouldn't have time to, to process everyone else's input. But with film, you do have more time. There's more time to craft the art of storytelling itself. So I would listen to what everyone had to say. And, and you know, it took about, I think it was 20 days, maybe 21 days to, to shoot the whole film. Once you all get comfortable as a group together, you know, people, instead of saying, oh, I have an idea, you know, they may say something like, well, that, it wouldn't work like that, or that shirt doesn't work or whatever it is. And so it was a very humbling process for me to be able to understand that at the end of the day, every single person that was giving me suggestions or input was doing it because they wanted, they, they liked this movie, this film, and they wanted it to be a success. And they wanted to bring their best ideas to it and do their best work. And it took a little bit of, of it took a few weeks for me to really get that. Um, but once once I got it, man, I mean, that whole set just became so collaborative of course it's it's mostly female um department heads you know it's it's you know just about all women on that set the the dp uh matt paulson is obviously a a a man and one of the other producers austin porter but other than that it was all women and i think that you know there was no there's no posturing and there's no ego 
it's all about, okay, what can I give to this um, that will make it the best film possible? And I think that everyone did that. And um, I was extremely grateful that, um, that we had the space to collaborate like that. Now, we did not uh, cover this when we were discussing uh, things before this started. So I'm going to put you on the spot here a little bit. Mm-hmm. You have learned a lot from this movie. You've learned about how the collaborative process and all that. What's next? <laughs> um, you know, I'm actually working on, I always have a lot of projects on my plate. Um, and I'm also a little, uh, a little ADD. So I have to, uh, you know, I, I now have tried to put my life into Excel documents <laughs> so I can focus and I can make sure I'm not trying to, uh, to do too many things at the same time. And right now I'm doing a, a documentary series for A&E, um, which will wrap towards the end of the year. Um, well, who knows now with the, with this quarantine, with the lockdown, but, and then honestly, I have so many films in me and I have films, you know, th- th- that first screenplay that I wrote, which was, uh, called Halfbreed, which was, uh, one of the 2016 winners of the page international screenwriting awards. I've been dying to make that film for a while too. Of course it was, you know, 10 times the budget of mom. And at the time I thought, you know, it's probably a really stupid idea to try and make my, my first movie for this budget when I don't know what I'm doing. So I'm going to start a little smaller and work my way up to it. And, um, and so I would like to, to look at half breed again, again, it's another psychological, dark psychological thriller that deals with a relevant theme, but, um, yeah. So, so more movies and finishing my, my TV show. I mean, you know, in between, in between, you know, when you do film, you mostly do it for passion, right? Not a lot of people make their budgets back, although we're, we're, we're on good track, I have to say, but so to pay your bills, you, you, you work, I work television jobs. That's what I do between, um, between my, my passion projects. And so I'm on a show now. And when that wraps up, I'll, I'll start to, you know, lift up the rug and look at some of my other projects that are, that are my other film, you know, my other screenplays that are down there screaming at me from under the rug saying, Hey, don't forget about me. I'm actually your life. (laughs) And that's why everyone should be out there supporting independent films, because if you want more great stuff to come, you have to support uh, what's coming out now. Uh, So again, go to Amazon and watch this movie. So just to wrap up, Abby, she is filming herself, documenting uh, their experiences with her son, and she's trying to get the word out to other mothers of monsters around uh, the country, around the world. So that's her goal is to inform, learn from others, prevent this from happening in the future. But she's not the only one filming. You were filming. So what is your goal for this movie it's out there it's in the culture what are you hoping that uh results from the release of this film well you know the same the same thing that sort of inspired me to write it which is that school shootings has personally impacted me and since then i've even had you know aunts and and nieces uh, and nephews who were at the vegas shooting so it, it keeps impacting me again and again and i I don't want it to have to impact people before we can enact some kind of change. I want it to be, you know, a, a, a national dialogue every day that we're having until we can set up these social emotional learning programs or to, until we can, 
enact some kind of, of, of sensible gun reform. And, you know, I'm not a, a parent. I'm not a, I'm not a politician. So for me, I, I'm a filmmaker and I wanted to make a film that contributed to that dialogue and kind of kept this issue seared into, into people's consciousness because it's not going away. You know, the coronavirus is going to, at some point go away and people are going to go back to schools and the sh- school shooting is going to start right back up again. So I wanted to, to make sure that this is something that we're still talking about because it's only a matter of time before it happens again. And, you know, you don't have to be a parent, um, or a politician to, to do something about this. You can be someone who watches my movie or other movies like it or other projects like it, and you're deeply impacted by it. This film does not give solutions. This film is a real-life horror that, at the end of the day, poses a lot of questions. Well, when people leave, you know, when they're finished watching this film, they're talking about it with their friends, and they're asking questions, or they're writing, you know, the, our, our production emails or texts and stuff. So we're getting a lot of good feedback about it, and that means that it's staying on people's minds. And I think that was always my intention was to keep keep this issue uh, kind of seared into people's minds, so that so that we can do something about it. Well, hopefully it will. And uh, it's an amazing film, so everybody should uh, should check it out and uh, join in on the discussion. Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. You bet. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. All right. Now, everybody, make sure you go to Amazon and watch Mom, Mothers of Monsters. Now, on this show, we like to dig deeper into the subject matter we're talking about. And as Tosia mentioned, she consulted with the National Partnership to End Interpersonal Violence when she was making mom. So who better to talk to than Dr. Jackie White, the co-founder of the NPEIV. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you? Hi, David. Thank you so much for inviting me to talk with you. Um, I'm doing really well, thanks. Oh, I think we're going to learn a lot today. So uh, before we get really into it, uh, tell us about the work you do with the uh, NPEIV uh, and uh, what you guys are uh, out to accomplish. I would love to talk about it. So NPEIV stands for the National Partnership to End Interpersonal Violence. We are a group of educators, researchers, practitioners, advocates, law enforcement, legal folks, who are all interested in making um, interpersonal violence, really elimination, the top priority in the country. We've been around for about 10 years now, and our primary goal is to um, learn from each other as well as to educate the community. One of the things that we've discovered historically is every form of violence seems to be what we call siloed, So you have some people doing child abuse work, you have other people doing domestic violence, other people doing sexual assault, elder abuse, some people working with perpetrators, some working with victims, some working with mental health issues, some working with substance abuse issues, but it's all connected. So we think we all need to get in the same room, learn from each other, and also include victims and perpetrators in those conversations to better understand uh, the roots of violence and what we can do to help reduce its occurrence. And if it happens, how do we reduce its impact? 
Well, let's hope we can get rid of that. Um, I was abused when I was a, a kid, and uh, it's. I appreciate the work you guys are doing. Um, well, I'm sorry that happened to you. I truly am. Thank you. Um, so we've been talking about Mom, Mothers of uh, Monsters today, and you actually worked a bit on the film. So tell us a little bit about the role you played in that. That was a really fascinating experience. My background is as an educator and researcher. And as you probably know, my daughter was the producer for that film. Sure. And she had a, a ready access to some information. I think that there were um, several reasons why Tusia, the director, Elaine, the producer, sought me out. And one of it is that there really are a lot of myths and misunderstandings about mental illness, about violence, and because my area of expertise is interpersonal violence. They wanted to talk with me to really make sure that they got it right. So I read the initial script, gave them feedback on um, some of the things that it prompted me to think about. We spent a lot of time looking at data, talking about um, really how complicated the whole issue is. I think my role more than anything was to complicate it <laughs> in a good way, because sure. we live in a culture where everybody wants a quick answer, a quick fix, a simple solution, and it just doesn't work that way. And so complicating the issue was absolutely the best thing that we could do. And I think the film was really successful in complicating the issue and presenting a lot of nuanced um, elements that are thought-provoking. I agree. I think that it, it, it's it's so easy for films to go into, hey, here's a really simple problem. This person is twirling their mustache and they want to take over the world or what have you. And it's really simple to, uh, to do. And to add that kind of depth to it, I think it, uh, it hits home as more uh, human, more real. Can you give us some uh, statistics on uh, youth who experience mental illness who are maybe bullied or have other kind of violence in their lives that maybe they commit violence against themselves to kind of shine a light a little bit on how big of a problem this might be? Right. Well, even that sounds like a simple question, but it's actually not because when we talk about mental health disorders or problems, they run the gamut from things that are relatively less serious to quite severe. And sometimes they are uh, life course persistent, oftentimes because there might be some bio underlying biological problem. And other times they are more restricted in time frame. So, for example, um, adolescence can be a time that's fraught with a lot of anxiety and depression, but that with proper social support, kids can outgrow it. And that's certainly true with regard to delinquency as well. We call it, sort of call it um, adolescent limited delinquency. But then there are other people for whom these are chronic lifelong problems. And so in that sense, it's, it's hard to put out a hard firm number. But we do know on average that maybe one in six United States youth are going to experience some kind of a mental health disorder each year. But as I said, it's going to vary um, in terms of its severity. And probably if you look at lifetime mental illness, probably 50% of um, adult problems begin at about age 14 and about 75% by age 24, which means we really do need to pay attention to young people, to youth, so that we can begin to intervene. The sooner you intervene, 
the more likely you are to be successful. That's a lot of people. Oh. Uh, so we're going to talk specifically about youth violence. Obviously, we're taking that from the film. So do we know the causes of childhood violence? And are there reliable statistics on how prevalent that is? Well, I think you had about four questions wrapped up in that one question. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So That's first the way of all, I do with it. regard to the causes of childhood violence, think even at that level, we have to look at various levels of cause. And at one level, we can begin with even the community or the neighborhood. So for example, children who are born into disorganized communities, communities where they're exposed to a lot of drugs and firearms, where there are adults who are unemployed or who are involved in crime, or they're exposed to racial prejudice, those kids are born into environments that automatically increase their risk. And so the one way you um, mitigate those risks is by providing a lot of love and social support within the family. So family um, can be very powerful as um, an antidote to those community problems. But if the family can't do that, then oftentimes another possibility is the school environment. But again, if, if children are experiencing academic failure, they're likely to be truant to drop out of school. All of these things are indicators they're both indicators that there's likely to be violence, but they also increase, they, they become risk factors. And then, of course, the family factors, which I already mentioned, that if the parents have issues with violence themselves, their own uh, mental health problems or substance abuse problems, maybe they were poorly parented, so they don't have good uh, conflict management skills, they don't have good uh, parenting skills, then that's going to increase the risk. And then there's also, at the level of the individual, there are some kids who are just born more vulnerable. There might be pregnancy and delivery complications that can affect literally the way the body responds to stress and arousal so that some children will be more vulnerable to these other environmental influences. So it really is a, um, it's a whole system of problems. And then I'm assuming a little bit later on, we'll probably talk what, talk about what we can do about it. But it also means that we have to pay attention to all those systems when we want to come up with um, solutions. What about uh, gender? Uh, it seems like, you know, whether it's mass shootings or what have you, it seems like it's mostly a male issue. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is there a role that toxic masculinity plays in it? or uh, something biological with men that makes that more prevalent? Yeah. Um, I don't think it has as much to do with biology it has, as it has to do with our cultural expectations about what it means to be a man. And stereotypically, strength, force, violence, domination has been associated with being male. The female stereotype, on the other hand, encourages passivity, compliance, those sorts of things. And so far, for especially young men to try to live up to what they see as societal expectations increases the chances that they're going to engage in all these kind of macho sorts of behaviors. So the way they dress, getting involved with guns, violence, video, you know, violent video games, all those sorts of things become part of, um, of the display of masculinity. It's, they're almost doing maleness by engaging in violence. So that's what makes it so toxic is that these young men 
engage in these behaviors that are really counterproductive to being successful in society. And that part of that, too, means hiding their own emotions and feelings so that men become, in particular become discouraged from either identifying emotional problems that they have, recognizing their feelings, whether they're feelings of anxiety or depression or even feelings of love and compassion. Men aren't supposed to show that. I, I think it's, that's changing someone. So we see men cry more often now than we used to. Um, but it becomes really toxic for their mental health. And then as they continue to try to struggle with what it means to be a man, it oftentimes shows up in these very um, hyper-masculine, violent, aggressive, domineering ways. So we need to change the way our culture views masculinity. Got, got it. Everybody understand that? Let's do it then. Absolutely. As simple as that. Let's just change gender norms and we've got it. So... <laughs> In, in the movie, uh, they do a really good job of showing some uh, warning signs that Abby picks up on. If there's a parent out there who doesn't know, what kind of warning signs should they be looking for that their child may be at risk to commit violence, whether it's mass violence or violence against their family members or that sort of thing? Uh, there are lots of different things, and they also relate to these different levels that I've talked about. So, for example, if we see children who are very hyperactive, they have a lot of trouble um, paying attention, they tend to take risk. Cruelty towards animals is a really big one. Um, the kinds of paraphernalia they surround themselves with, that ties into that toxic masculinity somewhat. So wanting to associate with symbols of strength and violence um, can be warning signs, looking at how they function in school. And even though in the film, um, Jacob was a fairly good student, oftentimes, I think more often than not, you're going to see things like academic failure, truancy, um, not getting along with your peers, either being bullied or being a bully, either, either way or both. Oftentimes it's both being part of a gang. There, there's no one profile. These Everything I'm mentioning now are just sort of snippets and you see some of them, but not necessarily all of them. So pay attention to your kids. Yeah. 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 And then the problem is, of course, if these children are in problematic families where the parents themselves are struggling with issues, it's going to make it more difficult for the parent to be tuned in. Right. Of course. Let's say that uh, someone out there is listening and they, and they, you know what? I can identify with Abby. I think that my child is a threat to themselves or others. What do they do then? Well, you need to look around your community to see what sorts of resources are available. And sometimes this can be, be problematic um, because those resources are not always as good as they can be. There are clearly hotlines that people can call. People can do online searches as a beginning. There's something that's going on now called... Um, Mental health first aid, there was some legislation passed and they provide funds to train individuals who are, they're almost like first responders, but they'd be people like teachers, um, any kind of um, people in the medical community, anybody who comes in contact with an individual. They're not trained to diagnose, they're not trained to treat, but they're, they're trained to spot the warning signal so that they can help um, direct the people in crisis in the right direction. And it could be a county mental health center, um, the local physician. 
I think somebody needs to look at what are the resources they have in the community. And of course, a lot of it has to do with, do you have money? Do you have health insurance? Um, turning to a pediatrician, I think more and more nowadays, pediatricians are starting to be trained um, in some of these mental health issues. Well, I am uh, Safe Talk certified. I don't, I don't know if you know what that is, but uh, I'm going to brag for a second. The uh, charity that I work with, uh, Runway to Life, uh, does training for uh, for people to recognize uh, some of the signs and of someone who may be a danger to themselves, then not how to, like you mentioned, not how to treat them, but how to maybe direct them towards treatment. I definitely would love it if uh, on a national level, the government would get behind uh, making it so that our sidewalks and streets were full of people who were prepared to to say wait that person's not acting very absolutely you you are so right that for the vast majority of all of us when something happens that's bad the first place we turn is not to a professional yep. we turn to our families our friends and our neighbors and so if we as just ordinary citizens could be better trained to spot the warning signs diffuse a volatile situation if we have to, and then know how to point the person in the right direction. Sometimes you just have to diffuse the situation, then get the person pointed in the right direction. So you're absolutely right. It, it has to become a, a much more of a community-owned problem. Well, I know I've learned a lot. So if for people who want to learn more, where can they go to donate or to just learn more about the uh, uh, NPEIV? Okay. So the National Partnership to End Interpersonal Violence, we have a website called npeiv.org. It is, um, anybody can join it, so it, you don't have to be a professional. We do have many people who themselves are um, uh, have a history of victimization or perpetration who have decided they want to become an advocate. We think that the voices of those groups are incredibly important and we all need to, to listen to them. So you can go to the website and see what we're about. We hold um, an annual summit every fall and I hope this pandemic stuff ends so we can actually have have a face-to-face uh, -face meeting Absolutely. in September. Um, there's also, there's an organization called NAMI, the National Alliance for Mental Illness, which is fantastic. Almost Love every them. community has one. They're fabulous. Um, they have a really good website, so that's really good. Um, the American Psychological Association has a website with a lot of information available. And of course, I think I already said that there are a lot of hotlines out there. So there are not a number of places that a person could go to just figure out how to get started. And I think also turning to even those basic sources of information, people would suddenly realize that they are so not alone. Exactly. I know when I was going through my issue, I looked around for regular people to understand what I was going through. Uh, and, you know, people aren't trained. <laughs> and uh, and then, of course, once I did uh, start looking, I, w I was like, oh, there are organizations out here that yeah. are ready to help me. And I'm actually not alone. And I thought I was. So I, I'm really glad to have the uh, NPEIV out there uh, helping people, and I thank you so much for uh, taking part in the show. You are very welcome. And that is our show. 
I'd like to thank our guests, Tusia Lyman and Dr. Jackie White, and thank all of you for being a part of this community. We'll see you next time. And remember, like any great franchise, your story isn't over yet. Thank <laughs> you.